Stop it! Don't open that door! Thank you for letting us into your home. Assuming, of course, that you did willingly let us into your home. For all I know, you, listener, are currently being held hostage by a home invader. And this podcast is being used against your will as oral torture. If so, I'm I'm very sorry for your predicament. Very much so. Uh, But real quick, to you, the home invader, thank you so much for choosing us. And spreading the word. Thank you. I know we we know that you have a lot of choices when it comes to planning a weird, most certainly overly contrived method for home robbery, but it means a lot that you trust us. Uh, so. And I've heard we sound best in panic rooms. <laughs> something about the uh, the acoustics, I think, or uh-huh. something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but who are we even? Um, and here I'm probably directing back to your victim, uh, because of course you, home invader, know. So, victim, who's listening to this? Who are we? We are the Masters of Unlocking Podcast. We are a different kind of video game podcast. One of us is an author and game lover. The other is a collector and recovering game store owner. I am Jill Sandwich, also known as Caleb J. Ross. (laughs) And with me is Chris's Blood, (laughs) also known as VG Collectaholic. And we delve into the business, economics, and psychology of video games. So if you like any of those things, then you are at the right place. Um, and if you're being, if your home is being invaded, you're probably still uh, at the right place. It's just the wrong time, probably, you know. <laughs> um, it's your fault for having such an invadable home, okay? I, I didn't want to say it, but I think that's probably true. This is America. Let's pack away some defenses, people. <laughs> you shouldn't go around in your, your skimpy, uh, ranch style home if you didn't want to be in okay that was horrible what are you people living in night trap <laughs> we've got the augers all over the place i want to be invaded but uh, my if, if my home was going to be invaded i'd want it to be by an auger uh <laughs> because um there's something just genuinely hilarious about an inept poorly constructed like villain like i don't know i just uh all the movies have taught me that i could probably just uh uh, laugh and I'll get away somehow, you know, because if there's an inept robber, you're going to live, you're going to survive. So I would just probably have fun with it. I mean, movies are never bullshit. So no, always run upstairs. That's that, that's rule one. <laughs> uh, hey, Kevin McAllister did it in Home Alone and he made it work. You know, he went upstairs. There was tarantulas up there. There was a cool zip line. That outside. kid knew what I he mean, was doing. Yeah. To be fair, he did prepare, I guess. And that's probably the difference, right? If you have time to prepare, you can probably lead the robbers anywhere you want. Always be prepared. Yeah. Very true. So what are we going to talk about today during this episode of the Masters of Unlocking podcast? We're going to talk about Toys R Us going bankrupt. Um, Sad emoji. We're going to talk about uh, a player who spends over 450 hours in Fallout 4 doing, I would say, non-Fallout 4 stuff. Though, as I say that, perhaps what he was doing is exactly what Fallout 4 is designed for. (laughs) We'll find out. Uh, We're going to talk about some one-of-a-kind Zelda art. Uh, Mario Kart going mobile, so it's a it's a mobile mobile I think or mobile mobile. There we go. <laughs> I was trying something there. It didn't work. We're going to be talking about uh, Red Dead Redemption Two being delayed. Uh, the Switch Online service coming back to tease us for a possible 2019 release. I say possible 2019 because of course I should. We're going to talk about uh, the father of PlayStation stepping down at Sony and 
is Microsoft going to buy some studios and or publishers? Um, so if any of those stories sound interesting to you, please stick around. And thank your home invader for you know exposing you to these glorious, glorious stories. <laughs> and if you can't talk through the gag in your mouth, just use some kind of sign language. Uh, most home invaders know sign language. It's part of the school. Bat your eyes. They like that. They like that. <laughs> so before we get on to all these amazing current events, we always like to talk a little bit about what we're playing, what we picked up, and you might have just heard my cat in the background. So my apologies. I don't know what's up with her today. Probably she's not used to me being up this early, so she's very confused. Uh, what are you playing uh, right now? Well, not right right, right now, but uh, during the, the time surrounding this recording of the podcast. Well, literally in the time surrounding this podcast, I just basically to record paused Middle Earth Shadow of War. So it's in <laughs> hibernate mode upstairs right now. I think I'm almost platinumed Shadow of War. I have this OCD where once I start a game, I can't really jump into another game until I've mm. completely finished the, the game that I'm already on, mm-hmm. which I guess that OCD translates into my game collecting as well. <laughs> it's a theme. It's interesting, though, that you say that because uh, that exact mentality is what prevents me from collecting games, I've realized, which I'll maybe talk a little bit about when I get into my pickups. But I just wanted to put that little nugget in there yeah. uh, as a way to as a landmark to remind myself to talk about it. But it's very interesting difference. Yep. Shut up, cat. <laughs> you know, this could be a it's two men and a cat podcast. <laughs> Can we get a different cat? Because mine sucks. <laughs> I don't have a cat, so I think we're stuck with yours. So then if the podcast is called Two Men Without a Cat, that's almost that that's a much different implication. There. Like, what happened to the cat? Where did where'd it go? Why even tell us that there's no cat if there wasn't one? Yeah. Anyway, my apologies. Please, please proceed. Well, I'm, I've finished the the main storyline for Shadow of War. I've uh, gone through, played basically the single player quest and all of the side missions and everything. And then after the main quest line there's sort of a new game plus mode where you can just go around and part of the part of what is kind of cool about shadow of war is it's got this mechanic throughout the game where you take over keeps you take them over from the orcs and then you man them with your own orcs and build up your defenses upgrade the walls things like that it's got a little bit of um tower defense type of strategy to it um and so then the new game plus mode after the storyline is really just some more of that. Uh, you just get wave and wave and wave of, of attacks from Sauron's forces and you're defending your keeps from invasion. So that's the part that I'm going through now is I just really am. It's a, sort of a vehicle to give you enemies to fight to complete some of the trophies or achievements. So I'm down to just two or three achievements left to finish that off and cross that off my list and add it to my 2018 cartridge club abc challenge Mm, yeah yeah so i'm i'm not sure which letter if it's going to be l for lord of the rings m for middle earth or s for shadow (laughs) of war got some options there it's always nice when you get towards the end of the list you can sort of take all of those multiple opportunities and place them where they need to yep shuffle them around and this year there's a rule too that they've instituted that any game that's got either a q in it or i think an x anywhere mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. name you can use for one of those letters so that's kind of neat yeah very much so and, and that's probably a good place to uh, talk about how great the cartridge club is because one of the things that i really like about it is that it's very non-toxic and i think this idea of being very flexible with the rule sets when we have these challenges is evidence of that non-toxicity no one's going to 
get mad or angry because we're kind of bending the rules a little bit. It's all about having fun, and that's super great. So visit the Cartridge Club org if you have not a lot of good people a lot of a lot of fun folks to game with a lot of fun folks to chat video games with and you know if you don't get your fill of video game knowledge by being kidnapped and listening forced <laughs> to listen to us well come on and join the conversation over at the cartridge club so <laughs> once i finish shadow of war i'm going to dive into the cartridge club february game of the month in february's prime game of the month not the handheld one but odin sphere say action rpg from vanillaware really colorful really cool artwork and as a scandinavian myself i'm looking forward to exploring some of the norse mythology that's sprinkled throughout the the storyline nice nice. yeah that's not a new release is it no it was originally released for playstation 3 and then it was essentially remastered for playstation 4 and playstation vita as odin sphere left hanser so they're both the same story it's just an updated version of it and that's the version i'm going to be playing is the updated one on playstation 4 nice and that one came out about i think a couple of years ago so it's not new um there were a couple of versions of it they had a big collector's edition called the storybook edition which came with a a metal slip case and a really nice art book uh, a t-shirt and I, i think a music cd i can't recall right off the top of my head but yeah and then they also had just the standard edition so Nice. Yeah. Very nice. What about you? What, uh, what is, what's been on your play log lately? Yeah. So I've been, uh, trying my hardest to peck away at the cartridge club console completion challenge, uh, where we are all playing, trying to complete the entire North American official super Nintendo release, uh, list. Um, so I've been plucking away at super Mario RPG only, only to learn today that a cartridge club member who shall remain nameless, just beat the game. So I won't get the points for beating it first, but I'll still at least get the points for beating it. Um, and I'm having a lot of fun with it. My, uh, It's a game that I never actually beat as a child, so um, having a lot of fun with that. Uh, just yesterday I got further than... I got to a point in the game that I'd never gotten to before, so now from this point forward it truly is a new game for me, and my kids are loving it. So I only play it when they're around so that we can all follow the story together, and they're really, really enjoying it. Um, I did play some of Oddworld New and Tasty, so I'm going back through a lot of the old games that I have on my shelf that I haven't actually played yet. So finally got around to playing some of Oddworld New and Tasty. Fun enough, but I think uh, I just don't have necessarily the patience for a... I love puzzle platformers, so like that's not the strange thing. Um, but Oddworld New and Tasty also has some um, combat mechanics to it um, that are just frustrating to some degree. There's a lot of, uh, timing in the puzzles and, and starting over that sort of thing a lot. Uh, a lot of, uh, you know, trial and error to get through things, which I'm not a big, huge fan of. So something about it's just not quite rubbing me the right way. And so, um, I, I, I will probably abandon that game and maybe come back to it later. Uh, I just have too much on my shelf to play. Uh, one of which is a game I'll probably play today. What remains of Edith Finch? Finally getting around to playing that. Mm. Gosh, people have told me so much about that game, and they know people who know my tastes say that I will absolutely 100% love it. So, it's a unique and great feeling to be a gamer and know that you're going to jump into something that will probably change. It'll be a sort of a paradigm shifting game, probably to some degree. That's my expectations. I've really built it up there. I've really built it up. So it better it better deliver. So you picked up the physical edition from I am eight bit, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Me too. Me too. And I and I saw on how long to beat that the game only takes about two to three hours to to beat to completion. So mm-hmm. maybe I'll slide that in front of Odin Sphere, dive, knock that out, and we can chat about that next episode and give our thoughts and what we liked and didn't like about it. Yeah, I love that. That sounds great. 
Awesome, awesome. Well, what did you pick up, though? Well, I had I knocked out some pretty heavy hitters over the past couple of weeks. And I, I guess relatively heavy hitters, I should say. Long-time listeners will know I've been working on knocking out the Wii U set. And I, I have the set of, of North American Wii U titles, but I've been working on knocking out the different cover variants, limited editions, things like that. And I got one of the two sort of holy grails for the Wii U collection, which is the Mario Kart 8 uh, limited edition box set, which was exclusively sold at the uh, Nintendo New York City store in uh, Rockefeller Center. And I think only like 350 or 500 of them were, were made. Comes with a, the standard game and then it comes with a like a blue shell figure. Uh, figurine hmm. in a in a box and it's pretty similar to i think a, a similar limited edition was released in in japan if i'm not mistaken um but this one is uh, an official ntsc release it's one of two limited edition box sets that the nintendo new york store released and both of them extremely rare uh, the other one was hyrule warriors so that one's still on my to do to get list but i was happy to knock out mario kart 8 i was not really thinking that i would ever land uh, Mario Kart 8 or the Hyrule Warriors limited edition so it's nice to add those to the to the collection and and limit the scarce things that I'm needing to pick up <laughs> do you think it would actually be worth it to uh f- to if, if you were aware of these existing do you think it would actually be worth a plane ticket to fly to New York and have a trip simply to pick up one of these is it that kind of rarity do you think long term probably they tend to sell new and sealed they tend to sell for anywhere from uh, 600 bucks to a thousand bucks just depending on the condition and a lot of them are really nicked up because the the boxes just like a lot of the wii u big boxes like the controller bundles and stuff there's not a lot of support in them so they're really just a a flimsy outer box with a game and a figure in there and nothing really to to lend structural support to the box so a lot of them mm-hmm. are not in the greatest of shape so to get a good condition one it, it escalates pretty well but depending on where you're coming from um i i definitely don't think it would pay for you know the the trip and the lodging mm-hmm. and all of that stuff especially considering from what i've heard the lines to get them when they when they were released like there was lines down the block and a lot oh, of people wow. that were in line to get them and were ahead of you know they're in advance well in advance didn't even get them so uh, wow. just the the scarcity was you know very um palpable i guess hmm. yeah but now of course now that they're not doing that anymore now i live in the new york city area so before i would have had to fly from denver now i can just hop on the train and go down to times square or uh, not times square but rockefeller center so maybe maybe someday they'll release something cool like that for the the switch and i can waste a night um, down there in New York City. It but, wouldn't be a waste. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know how much time you've spent in New York City. <laughs> yeah, not, not, not probably either not enough or plenty. I'm not really sure which one. <laughs> I probably just angered a large chunk of our listenership. I'm not, a, I'm not a huge city guy. So let me yeah, just me throw that out there. Uh, but the other kind of heavy hitter that I picked up for the Wii, and this one is a, a, a not a very well-known heavy hitter, but it is one of the rarer games for one of the rarer titles that was released at a standard retail for the system, and that's the Nintendo Land Luigi controller bundle. So it comes with a a green uh, Wii U 
Wiimote controller, Wiimote Plus controller, and then the Nintendo Land game packaged in one of those flimsy cardboard boxes that I mentioned earlier. This one is becoming very scarce, uh, very hard to pick up. I've only seen them pop up even on eBay a couple of times within the last year, and typically they go um, go very quickly once they pop up. So I was happy to, happy to land one of those and cross it off the list. Um, now there's really only a couple of really scarce variants that I need remaining for the Wii U outside of that Hyrule Warriors limited edition. So it's starting to come down to the the final items. So pretty, pretty happy about that. It'd be nice to get the Wii U crossed off the complete set. And then as I refer to it, the new game plus version of collecting where you go for all the variants. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Last episode, I started talking about going after crossing off a big chunk of the odyssey 2 set that was one of my 2018 gaming goals was to get into the odyssey 2 and see if i could complete the set within one year of collecting for it i mentioned that there were a couple of games that were scarce uh, and one of the games that's reported to be the scarcest game on the system i was able to get a complete in box copy of that this week and that is power lords which i believe was the last game officially released in north america for the system and then uh, one of the iMagic games, Demon Attack. Uh, I like the iMagic games. They are a little bit rarer on the system. They're sort of in that, uh, I wouldn't call them rare, but maybe an uncommon tranche for the system. And the boxes are very, they're foily. They're very uh, colorful. They look, they were released for the Odyssey and the Intellivision and the or the uh, Atari 2600. So uh, I'm sure most people have seen the iMagic boxes for those Gen 2 systems, but I, I I just think they have a cool retro look to them. Is it like the foil kind of old baseball card, foily looking kind of yeah, machine? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and it, you, you, it's interesting you mentioned baseball because every time I look at those iMagic boxes from that era, I think of the old early 80s, late 70s Houston Astro jerseys where they have like the, <laughs> yeah. the color bars on them and they're the yellow color bars and on the boxes it's like a gold foil look that is very, um, you know, or perpendicular boxes as a testament to how like how much that look is has staying power i'm not a sports fan at all but as soon as you said that i remember i know exactly what you're talking about so somehow that made an impression on me even not caring about sports yeah it they stumbled across one article that was a by a marketer uh, who worked at the marketing firm that designed those uniforms and he talked about just the journey and how they came about those uniforms and apparently it was uh was they were they were really going for a look that was out there crazy would set itself apart and be memorable and clearly <laughs> yeah they, it worked it worked <laughs> And then the last item that I picked up this week that I'm going to get into is a current gen. It's for the PlayStation 4, and I only got it on PlayStation 4 because the Switch version was sold out, because I think this would be a fun game to play on the Switch, and that is the Square Enix JRPG Lost Sphere. Uh, the physical edition of the game for PS4 and Switch was exclusive to the Square Enix online store, and I should have pre-ordered it. I uh, didn't think I, it would be a short print, and I thought I would just wait until Square Enix had one of their sales, and I'd pick it up then. Because obviously, with Square Enix, you don't get you know you don't get your Amazon Prime twenty percent discount. You don't get your 
Best Buy Gamers Unlock 20% discount, and they charge like $8 for standard shipping. So hopefully I can still land a Switch copy of it at some point here without paying an arm and a leg on the secondary market. Mm -hmm. So that's everything I've gotten. What about you? What what have you picked up, Mr. (laughs) Non-Collector? Nothing. (laughs) I have picked up, I have bought no new games, and uh, I... Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to vocalize it again. So I made a video uh, recently on my YouTube channel where I talk about that I, I'm not going to buy any more LGR or limited run games. I almost said LGR, uh, Lazy Game Reviews games. Uh, I'm not going to buy any more. <laughs> Every time limited... I see him on Twitter, I think, wait, that's not that's not limited run. <laughs> yeah. what? They need to do some sort of uh, marketing like team up to really confuse a lot of people. I think that'd be great. Like the limited uh, run Lazy Game Alphabet Scramble. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, so I mentioned that I was going to not buy any of their games anymore. Um, and I was pretty harsh in the video, uh, in, in, in case anyone listening to this hasn't seen that video, which would be plenty of you, I'm sure. Um, it, it has nothing to do with limited run games themselves. I think they're a great company. In fact, I ordered a t-shirt after making that video to prove that I still definitely care about their, their, uh, mission, their, their everything. I think they're a great company. Um, but it sort of hit me like a bolt of lightning that, um, I was spending, you know, a, a good amount of money on these games. You know, they release forty or 40, they release four or so games a month um, at, you know, thirty bucks a piece or something, and that that tends to add up. Um, and while that's not an insanely crazy amount of money necessarily, it is when that money's not really being used, at least from my perspective as a non-collector. Like, I don't like having stuff on my shelf that I'm not going to play or that I haven't played yet. It just eats away at me. And this kind of goes back to your earlier statement about one of the things that maybe makes you collector is the OCD tendency where you have to complete a game before you move on to the next. I have that same kind of mentality, except for me, it's I have to, I I, I want to, um, it's not so much that I necessarily need to complete a game before moving on to the next, but I don't want there to be just unplayed games on my shelf. And um, and it does, and I had to finally admit to myself that it does bother me. Um, And maybe that's an entirely different uh, therapy couch session kind of conversation where I talk about why it bothers me, but it does. And I have to acknowledge that. And once I acknowledge that, once I realize that it's okay for me to admit that it does bother me to have unplayed games on my shelf, then the decision actually became pretty easy for me to say, well, then I don't need to get limited run games anymore. And when I add on to that, the prospect of that run of games ever ending soon, you know, if, if, if limited run games wasn't such a good company and they went under after two years, it would make a lot more sense for me to be vested in continuing to buy the games. But considering they have no end in sight, uh, I just know that that's going to be a lot of money uh, moving in the future. And it's going to be a lot of games that I haven't had time to play. And it's just going to, it's, I have to call it quits sometime. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm not going to buy any games. I think the next, the next uh, release comes out next Friday. So it's going to be the first time that I, uh, don't watch the countdown timer on a Friday morning to pick up these games as soon as they're released. It's gonna be, it's gonna be a weird feeling. I'm probably gonna have panic attacks throughout the day, thinking, "Oh God, I missed the time." Wait, no, that's okay. I wanted to miss the time. Um, so that's that's gonna be a little weird. Um, I do definitely open myself up to buying a game from them if it's a game that I actually just truly wanted. So it was a game I was holding out for and really wanted. I'll, I'll probably still do that. But on top of that, I'm also going to try to just buy fewer games in 2018. I know I said that last year, um, but uh, this year I think I have a better chance of doing that, of just buying fewer games in general. So that's that's it. So I'm, I'm probably not going to have too many pickups to speak of uh, in this portion uh, moving forward. So, uh, wow, that's, uh, that's, that's yeah, yeah. No, I I get what you mean on on limited run games. They're 
They actually just announced yesterday on Twitter that they were going to be scaling. They were actually going to be canceling a bunch of games that they had agreed to publish because they realized that their their game's release schedule was sort of too overcrowded, right? I mean, they, they were basically releasing multiple games multiple weeks a year or multiple weeks a month. And for people who are collecting the whole th- the whole set, which I feel like is a large part of their repeat business, right? It's the yeah. the people who are just buying it because they like well people like me, right? Who are OCD <laughs> about having the complete set and having the cover variants, and I I think with that the combination of having limited run here with their heavy release schedule plus the new things that are popping up like uh, East Asia soft releasing limited prints at play Asia um, there's a company in Germany which is I think called um, special edition games if I'm special not special reserve I think no there's two diff- two different ones two actually. different ones? yeah okay. special reserve games I think is here and that's a company that is sort of um, working along with limited run games there they limited run has reissued some of the special reserve games with exclusive limited run covers but then in germany this is only within the last couple of months i think it's special edition games um they are they just released their third release um it just gets to be too much you know i'm all for games getting physical releases but um i think that when you have a bunch of the 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 niche releases like this i think you're probably going to be more it's going to be more risky for these companies going forward because i think a lot of the people who were guaranteed to sell out are are just not anymore you look at uh the east asia soft limited editions at play asia they only make for anywhere from 1000 to 2500 copies of those games and they don't sell out immediately some of them are still available on their website um i know that the the special edition games they have they didn't sell out of their first print run for i i they may still not be sold out and i think they only had like 3500 of them to begin with that was uh tokyo 42 was their first game Uh, and their subsequent two releases have been much lower print runs so from what i understand just based on the conversation on twitter with josh from limited run games when he talked about how they were canceling some of their upcoming upcoming release schedule they noted that these the companies springing up like this in in europe actually have a lower hurdle because they can so the sony manufacturing facilities in europe actually allow them to do a smaller print run so they don't have to commit to you know a thousand two thousand three thousand copies of a game they could do a print run of 300 and get it through sony's manufacturing facilities Hmm. Yeah. And it's a strictly limited is the name. That's what it is. Thank you. Yeah. Yep. yep See, yep. there's too many of them. I can't keep them straight. <laughs> yeah. No, I remember when they, uh, when, when that camp, I do remember when that company first came around because that Tokyo 42, I was looking into it and it, it was a game that just didn't interest me at all. And so I was like, there's no way I'm going to start on a game that doesn't even interest me. Uh, if it was a game like, uh, that really interested me, I might have then set in motion the need to, acquire all of their games as well but right luckily it was just a game that just didn't seem to interest me too much yeah i i just did receive i think this past week um my order of their second release which was griffin knight epic um which looks like it's a a 2d medieval shoot 'em up so it's kind of a side scrolling it it almost looks like a um 
magical chase type game, except with a medieval setting instead of a, um, you know, kind of witch magical type setting. It's looks kind of like a cute em up almost. Yeah, I see that. It's interesting. And that has the art style. I need to find out what the name of that kind of art style is because there's something about it. And I did a video about this as well, I think, or maybe we talked about it here on the podcast, but there's something about this art style that's off-putting to me, and I don't know what it is. It's it's sort of the uh, the bone animation where mm-hmm. it's using rather than uh, you know frame by frame pixelated type of stuff. It's using bone structure and bone anatomy to animate. That I think is partly off-putting because I feel like that has just such hot, strong connotations to mobiles and mobile uh, environments, and it's almost too clean. And I don't know what the word for that is, but there's just something about that too clean look with bone animation that is off-putting to me. It just it it. I, I don't know. I, I'm going to find my, I'm going to, this is the author speaking, uh, not being able to find the words, but I'm going to find a way to articulate what it is about that that's off-putting to me to see if maybe I can't uh, gather a group of like-minded individuals to, uh, to, to um, you know, get drunk and, and cry about it. So, all right. I definitely do prefer more of a, a hand-drawn or even a cell-shaded look. I, I really kind of mm-hmm. like that cell-shaded view look. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's go. Let's let's jump right into current events. Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'll, I'll I'll let you lead with this one um, because uh, you have more connection to the the subject of this next story than I do. Toys R Us just announced this past week that they are closing 120 stores nationwide. And that's nearly 20% of their physical stores. Now, it's been been a while. But I think back in September of this past year, they filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection, which gives them... Um, that doesn't mean they're going out of business. What Chapter 11 means is that uh, they get protection against some of the their debts, and they can try to restructure their business in a way that allows them to survive so it's it's sort of part in the public interest that companies don't go belly up right because then all of their all of their creditors are lost all of their everybody who has a stake in that company whether they're stockholders loan holders uh, employees customers everybody loses in that scenario so uh, chapter 11 bankruptcy really allows a company to try to reorganize itself without uh, creditors being able to come in and try to seize all of their assets. So they did that back in September and they've still been, uh, you know, the ball has still been rolling downhill for them in terms of inability to secure new stock. A lot of toy manufacturers have cut off the capabilities for Toys R Us to buy as much stock as they could because they're afraid that Chapter 11 is going to fail, and then they're going to be basically out the product and not get paid for it. Um, a lot of toy manufacturers like Jax and Hasbro and Mattel have even announced in some of their earnings calls that they have seen their revenue take a hit just specifically because they're not selling as much stuff to Toys R Us. But, I mean, I, I really hope that Toys R Us can can pull out of the nosedive that they're in. It's been years now since KB Toys closed, but both KB Toys and Toys R Us really had a marked place in my childhood. They were avenues where I got most of my games. I worked for both companies, actually. I worked uh, one of my first jobs that wasn't working on family friends' farms or working in the local uh, Dairy Queen was actually at a a KB Toys uh, one holiday season and... And then in after college, between when after I sold my video game stores and was waiting to go to grad school, I was looking for something to do, and I worked for eBay Enterprise doing um, 
telephone like customer service for toysrus.com so a lot of personal you know personal feelings about toys r us closing up uh, a big chunk of its stores and just it really a lot of my game collection came from toys r us wandering through the the game halls of toys r us where it was basically just big halls with pictures of the covers and and you flip over the the picture of the cover and it had all of the information about the game and then if you wanted it you pulled out this little paper ticket and you would take the ticket up to the front counter where they would have all the games sealed in this sort of holy grailish metal you know metal <laughs> security cabinet and it was just almost a rite of passage as you anticipated getting the game in your hands you couldn't just grab it off the shelf and and get that instant gratification um, it was almost like completing a quest and getting it getting your <laughs> your reward did you have any kind of uh toys r us memories not toys r us you know you mentioned kb toys um and actually i do have a uh, so I, I i grew up in a small town um the nearest I what I would what at the time I would consider big town um, was about forty five minutes away, a forty five minute drive, and that big town wasn't even big. Um, it was it was it was the capital of it was Topeka, the capital of Kansas, um, but it wasn't a huge city by any means. Um, there was a couple malls there. One of the malls had a KB Toys that though I did never I I don't remember ever buying anything from. It was one of those standard stops where my mom would almost kind of just let me absorb the majesty of the place mm -hmm. uh, for a few minutes, you know, as she kind of sat down on a bench and rested. And I remember as a kid not even being disappointed that I couldn't get anything. You know, I grew up not having, uh, we, we didn't have really any disposable income at all. So um, it, it was, th that was enough for me just to even be close and surrounded by these games. It was a very strange thing. You know, for me, I would get a game probably for Christmas, um, mm -hmm. sometimes one for my birthday, and that was kind of it. Um, I would rent games a lot. I, I was always renting games. So that kind of satiated my, my need. And at the time as a kid, completing a game, beating a game was just unheard of. That wasn't a thing that people actually did. Like yeah. it was sort of, yeah. So I, I didn't have any problems with not completing a game and only having it for a couple of days when I rented it. So it was mostly around just, uh, just being in that, uh, in that space. Um, but like the cage and all that kind of stuff, I absolutely kind of, I, even at KB Toys, I, I remember they had a very similar, uh, similar setup. Um, and it's, you know, even to this day, I just have these vivid mental snapshots of, of, of that situation. So I don't have the Toys R Us memory. I think what my biggest non-business related concern is about Toys R Us possibly closing down completely. But again, to your point, they're not at that point yet. My, I wonder what the replacement is going to be is currently for kids of this generation. Do they have a magical place that they can go and be surrounded by video games? Or is that just relegated to either the video game counter at like a Walmart target kind of place. I know there's game stops, but um, I don't know that that has the same magic to it. Maybe it does. I don't know. Obviously I'm not a kid brain anymore, so maybe it does have a similar magic. And then there's also having Amazon packages arrive on the doorstep. Right. And that feels like, I think that's a different kind of magic, right? You're getting to open up something and see it. So I think the magic is still there. It's a different kind of magic. Um, and I'm hoping that that type of magic is, will be remembered by them in the same way that we remember a KB Toys or a Toys R Us. And, I, and I'm confident that it will. I really am. I think there's a, it's different browsing the digital hallways of, of e-commerce, I think, than it is in a, an actual physical store. I mean, I'm just thinking of Amazon's, it, the Amazon experience, it's not, 
it's not well designed for someone who doesn't know what they're looking for. If you're just looking to wander up and down the halls and see what's there, you know, in terms of whether, what are the video games that are out? What are all of the games for Sega, you know, Sega Genesis? You could go to your Toys R Us and you could, there would be literally hundreds of them, you know, hanging on there, hanging in each of the, each of the aisles, just waiting for you to flip the card over and see what it was all about. And I don't feel like there's a real good e-commerce equivalent to that. And probably the, the closest thing is Steam or the Xbox Live or the more of the digital distribution markets seem to be better designed for just browsing. Uh, one of the things that I think is important to remember, too, and, and this was actually made, I'll use ebooks and print books as a, as a proxy for this conversation, because that's the context it came up when I originally had had this thought. So um, as as a one-time author, or, or many times author, but in the past, I guess I should say, um, there was this, uh, I, I've had, had plenty of conversations with um, veteran authors that were lamenting the fall of print. Um, and that was sort of the common thing. Those old authors hate the fact that ebooks are coming around and the younger authors don't really care either way. And so there was this schism between the two. Um, except there was one author slash friend who I spoke with who was, it was a little bit different. He was older than me, but he completely 100% embraced ebooks earlier than anyone that that I remembered and I remember him uh, having this conversation with him you know the the memories the smell of the paper that sort of thing those are going to be lost with ebooks and he said those memories will be lost sure but imagine all of the different types of memories that the kids are having now like the same way that we as an old fogey authors would love to the smell of books that kind of thing they're going to remember that subtle flash of the screen as they transition from one page to another in an, in a Kindle like that's going to be something that is important to them. And while it seems strange to those of us that have memories and associations with print books, it's no less valid to have a memory associated with a flash of a screen. Like that is going to be the proxy or that's going to be the conduit by which all of these memories come flooding back. And so I think in the in the digital space, you know, you, you mentioned Steam and you kind of glossed over the idea of Steam being the uh, the closest equivalent to a, a to uh, browsing I think there's going to be an association with the sound of your click, clicker mouse going as you scroll down slowly through the through the covers. You know that's going to be something that that registers with people. The the dark background of Steam and, and the grid layout of the of the of the games that's going to be something that resonates with someone almost as much as possibly walking down the aisles. Now, when you're walking down the aisles, you also have a lot of contextual memories and things that you can be picked up on you could there could there could be the smell of the annie's pretzel place down the down the road you know mm -hmm. you have that smell associated with it well i think depending on where a person's computer is or where most of their browsing is done they could still potentially have those kind of memories like if their browsing is done mostly in their bed you know maybe they have a phone a tablet and they're laying in their bed and they're scrolling through games and that's what they do every night they just look at all the cool games out there or they watch let's plays and that's what they do they have a dedicated space where they watch let's plays that's still going to they're still going to pick up on those memories you know and at every time they crawl into bed from now until they die they're going to think about video games and they're going to think about watching let's plays um you know i even me as an old man like i've mentioned before there's a few let's play channels that i really like watching you, 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 many a true nerd was the one that i brought up a lot but i still have i have vivid memories of some of the highlights of watching many a true nerd and as soon as i think of the places where I was when I watched those, all of the memories of that particular game come flooding back to me. And so I think it's still going to be there. And it's, 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 it's a tr it's a standard generational change, right? Where us old people may not quite get it, 
but we have to at least understand and realize that it is valid. They are going to have valid memories. You can't, a human brain can't just not, well, a, a healthy human brain can't just not have memories. It's going to create stimulus, even if we don't give it the same kind of stimulus that maybe we're used to. So I, I'm optimistic, I guess. Very well said, sir. <laughs> well, that's that's one. That's my one for the, for the podcast. <laughs> Caleb always does a fantastic job, if you're new to the, the podcast, of describing sort of the, the psychological aspect. I learned so much. <laughs> Likewise. Um, and that I should I should that, that should be a nice little uh, a preemptive uh, for a main event later on. I have a feeling it'll be primarily Scott educating the rest of us because it'll be very business heavy. And that's definitely where Scott's forte is. Um, so I, I think we work well together. So uh, the, the the let's jump on. So I'm going to I'm going to try a transition here. I'm going to do this. <clears throat> So we would spend a lot of time walking through the halls of those game of those of those uh, physical stores, but what about walking through the digital halls of Fallout Four, uh, which is what someone did um, and wrote a great article about it at, at Polygon.com. Um, the article is called "I Spent 453 Hours in Fallout Four and All I Got Was This Stinking Inner Peace," and that's the sort of joke that uh, I don't really like. Um, <laughs> I don't know; it's just <laughs> not funny to me, but. Uh, but the article is really cool. Uh, I wanted to mention this article because it it it, it it's a good example of way it it it, uh, tech, it can it adds some context to games being used for other purposes than just being games, which is something that we gamers do a lot, um, but we don't necessarily verbalize it or talk about it in that way. So in this particular story, uh, there was a Fallout Four player who spent 453 hours, as indicated by the title, in Fallout Four doing mostly non-Fallout stuff, meaning just kind of collecting junk, uh, storing that junk in various assets, bathtubs, uh, containers, that sort of thing, in the uh, the the structure building element of Fallout 4. Um, and it was just basically doing not what the game is supposed to be doing, but just kind of having fun and walking through as though it's just a virtual museum, a virtual living space. And what I really liked about this is that the author uh, of the of the article goes into depth about how this was helpful from a therapeutic perspective. It, it allowed this person to uh, escape from their kind of daily routine. It allowed them to just sort of almost uh, 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 be, um, so it, it was a, almost like a meditative type thing um, where they were just kind of able to shut their brain off and, and do other things. It, they talked about, the, uh, the author talks about how um, he or she, I cannot remember, I, I apologize, so I'll it's, just say they. A.E. Ross is the author. A.E. Um, Ross. And I believe I, it's a woman. Woman, okay. I will just say Ross, how about that? Um, so this author, Ross, um, did, uh, uh, talked about how it allowed uh, it allowed him or her, <laughs> allowed her, I'll just say her, how about that? It allowed her to dedicate uh, herself to um, uh, media, um, uh, other medias like podcasts and things like that as in a way that she wasn't able to do before because she's dedicating all this time to just kind of zoning out and, and doing this kind of thing. And the, I really, I, this particular story I think ticks a few boxes for me. One, I, I, I'm almost jealous of the person who has that amount of time to just sort of zone out and play a game in this way. There's something about it that is really interesting to me and intriguing to me. And possibly one of the reasons why I'm so drawn to walking simulators and things like that is I do sort of love the meditative uh, non-combat, non-action aspect of games. That's just fun for me. I also love, 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 and I'll probably make a video about this at some point, but I love the idea of collecting random junk, whether that be 
in real life or in digital space. <laughs> the, the idea of seeing a digital bathtub full of like tin cans is somehow very satisfying to me. And I don't know what that is. Um, and that, I think that's the collector in me. You know, you collect, uh, Scott, you collect video games, you collect uh, that sort of thing. And I think almost what has drawn me away from from collecting video games, even though I love video games, obviously, is I think that it doesn't necessarily satisfy the itch of being something that is 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 I don't know I don't know nebulous enough for you possibly yeah I I think there's something so if you have long uh, long time listeners will remember the episode if they checked out the show notes where Caleb introduced us all to his old collection of condoms (laughs) yes thank you thank you so it's that kind of thing where I love a grouping of things that most people would consider junk and now young listeners condoms are not junk but I love this collection of just junk. And, and I have on my wall, I'll probably put this in the video too, I have, you know, framed pictures of just hundreds of cigar rings, for example. Um, I have uh, a one that's just a bunch of old cigarette packages. I, I don't smoke cigarettes, but I think there's just something visually appealing about having collections of things that you wouldn't normally think of as being collected and presented as art to some degree. And that that's very interesting to me. So possibly that's where I get... Uh, interest in this Fallout 4 thing as well. Um, I don't know. I, I just thought it was a cool story, and I would definitely encourage everyone to check it out. We'll link it in the show notes. I really enjoyed the fact that it was Fallout, because I think, well, you mentioned that it's not really playing the game. I tend to think of it as it's a different take on what would be required in sort of a post-apocalyptic world like fallouts right i mean he's he's got bathtubs full of like blood supplies and he's got bathtubs full of bowling balls and he's got bathtubs full of this the green like not food packets right and (laughs) just sort of he's got putting everything in its place and it's almost like taking this dystopian world that's completely chaotic completely torn asunder and bringing order back to it bringing some sort of of humanity back to it as humans we are creatures that love to categorize things and we love to organize our world and i feel like that's sort of what the the title is getting at in in finding this inner peace is it's taking the anarchy and the dis the the chaos of the the post-nuclear world that he's living in and sort of restoring order (laughs) yes perfect uh yeah and i think also along the lines of of it being this post post apocalyptic world in in the context of the game all of those pieces of quote unquote junk that you're collecting actually do have an applicable purpose you know in real life you couldn't take a tin can and turn it into a gun and fallout 4 you can so it kind of makes sense that you would be collecting all of this junk because in that world it makes sense it makes sense to have this junk so you know, in a weird turn of a, a turn of events, uh, it actually makes more sense than you would think. So yeah, yeah, I like it. Uh, so speaking of art, oh, yeah. were you going to go there? I was going to uh-huh. say the exact same thing. Well done, sir. Oh, uh, uh, <laughs> I'll let you have it. Please proceed. <laughs> so speaking of art, oh wait, you already covered that part. <laughs> speaking of one of a kind things, just being repurposed for decor. I like it. You've played Legend of Zelda: Breath of Breath of the Wild, right? Oh, I've more than just played it. I've, ex- <laughs> I've experienced it, sir. Have you played the DLC packs? No. <laughs> I I have not either. And so I'll be, I'm waiting for a physical complete edition to come out before I dive into the the expansion packs, because as most of you will know, I don't buy DLC. I don't buy digital. Um, but 
I came across this article where a, a user on Reddit named Kazudak actually took the a functionality that's contained in the Heroes Path DLC pack and put a little tweak to it that I thought was cool. So in, in the Heroes Path DLC, they introduced a tracking mechanism to the world map where it actually shows you, it traces sort of your route through Hyrule. So if you go to the map and you've got the Heroes Path DLC, it'll show you a path of where your character has been. And it stores up to your last 200 hours of your Hyrule wanderings. So this Reddit user went and took their map and painstakingly took over 200 screenshots of the map, which shows his exploration through Hyrule, (laughs) pieced them all together in a painstaking process of Adobe Photoshop, taking them, syncing them up to make one gigantic Hyrule world map that features his path throughout Hyrule and made a, a wall poster out of it. And framed it and hung it up on his wall as just a uh, pretty cool, unique keepsake to remember the 200 some odd hours that people have poured into Breath of the Wild. And I think the cool thing about it is that no two of them will be the same. Right. Anybody he posted uh, on on Reddit and we'll put the link in the show notes on how the process that he went to do this and and obviously it's a, it's an undertaking you got to do a lot of screenshots you got to spend a lot of time syncing up those screenshots and making it into a a a whole map but i think it would be cool to just see a bunch of different ones and a bunch of the different ways that people experience the impressive game that is Zelda Breath of the Wild. Yeah, I absolutely love this idea. It's it's takes all of my boxes. This a lot of the news items here are just ticking lots of my boxes. I, I love the idea that this acts as both a literal and figurative landmark for memories that you would have had in the game. You could you as the player can look at this and no, I mean you could literally see there's a there's a you know you could look at the map and say this trail starts to lead in this direction and then immediately takes a 90 degree turn in this direction. Oh, I remember exactly what happened there. I, there was a giant uh, enemy there that I just wasn't strong enough to beat. And so I had to run away from it. And those are memories that I think people will uh, will connect with, the players will connect with um, relatively easily. I mean, there's the, you know, the, the more the more hooks you can put into a memory, the more easy it is to recall that memory. And so this is one mapped hook where you are able to now pull back some of those memories or pull out some of those memories and sort of relive the adventure. And I love it. I love it. I think it's something that I would love to see video game developers, uh, video game publishers specifically, I guess. I would love to see this as part of of them start to incorporate more of these sort of things into their uh, into their uh, their merchandising. I mean, why not? Why couldn't Legend of Zelda create something like this for each individual user and and you know have the users pay twenty bucks for it or something like that? I'm sure there'd be plenty of users. Um, I remember as a child, I used to think it would be such a great idea to be able to have a printable certificate for games that you beat. Again, going to my earlier statement where beating a game as a child or completing a game as a child was just unheard of. So uh, on the very rare instances that it happened, it was a big event. It was a big deal to be able to complete a game. And I always thought it would be great if there was a way you could just connect a printer to your to your NES and have it print a certificate of completion or something. And you could hang that on the wall and be like, yeah, I beat the game. You know, uh, online uh, leaderboards and things like that have largely replaced the need for that sort of physical memento. But this type of thing would be amazing. I would love to see it. Yeah, me too. I, I am so 
looking forward to getting the hero's path and and doing this. You know, I I think it's just such a cool discussion piece, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you, when people who have also experienced Breath of the Wild come over and they they see the path that you took, they can hone in on things like, "Oh, you went you were really looking for something here going back and forth and back and <laughs> forth or you know, you spent you know, you were going around in circles over and over and over here and I know exactly what you were looking for or oh, I see you try it took you like 12 tries to go take that running leap off of the cliff to make it to that island down in the south east corner of the map and floating there dying over and over because you were misangled <laughs> or misaligned or whatever you know i i think it just is a a good way to like you say serve as a mental hook to bring bring up topics of discussion and and shared experience yeah and i'm no modder um i think but it feels like this uh a mod if if of course legend of zelda was open to modding and i don't think it is being a console type game and all that kind of stuff but if, if it were another game, a, a Fallout, for example, um, it feels like there would be the ability to sort of mod and almost run a macro to take all of the screenshots for you and then and then maybe export all the images and even maybe do the stitching itself. I mean, there's probably something out there that a, that a player could do. But hey, Nintendo, if you're listening, and I know you listen to this podcast, it's the only podcast you listen to, Nintendo, uh, do it. Make, yeah. make this a thing so people can just buy it. Reggie, hook well, us up. Yeah, let us let us find other ways to give you our right. money for Christ's sake. Jeez, you're clearly listening to what people want, and shareholders for years have wanted Nintendo to start pumping out smartphone apps. <laughs> Good one. Yes, it's true. Nintendo is bringing Mario Kart to smartphones. Mm. Um, uh, Mario Kart Tour will be the name of this game, and it'll be releasing sometime between now and March 2019. That's a very narrow window. I guess consider <laughs> they basically just said that it's going to be sometime in this fiscal year. So, uh, considering the infinity of time, I guess that is a fairly narrow window. We should yeah. we should be thankful, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it seems like a, on its surface, it seems like a perfect fit. A kart racing game on your phone. I mean, you know, your landscape port hand uh, uh, landscape position of the phone would be very uh, applicable to a kart racing type game. Um, my, my only initial kind of concern with it is that I hope they don't rely too much on your gyroscope kind of technology with, with phones. I always felt that was kind of awkward with handheld with, Mm -hmm. with handhelds because you're literally changing, uh, how you look at the screen, you're tilting the screen around, which is very, very complicated and awkward. So I'm hoping they don't do that. Um, are you, are you someone who played any of, I know you're not a digital gamer, but when it comes to mobile games from Nintendo, I, this is only the third one, so it's a very small scope. Have you played them? Have you enjoyed them at all? The only f- game I've ever played on my phone is Angry Birds. <laughs> and you loved it, right? Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> I just, I don't enjoy gaming on my phone. I, I just, for whatever reason, I think part of it is just the, the psychological, you know, mobile games being crap and um (laughs) and then there's another aspect of it which is just realistic me knowing that if i got into playing games on my phone which i have with me at all times uh nothing would ever get done ah that is some restraint and i and i respect that i do what about you? Have you played Mario Run or Pokemon Go or? Oh yeah, Pokemon Go. So I guess this is the fourth game um, that they would have done because they also did the Animal Crossing one, mm-hmm. right? The Animal mm-hmm. Camp or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I I've, I have I played two seconds of Pokemon Go. Um, I played. I have never played the Animal Crossing, and I played probably about ten minutes of Mario Run, and it was a fun enough game. Mario Run. I, I can't. I can't uh, hate it. You know what? I what I respect Nintendo for doing is. 
if it feels to me not like a cash grab. I mean, um, every product is in some ways a cash grab, I guess, but it feels like it's not um, because they they used the medium, they used the limitations of the medium itself, and didn't try to force an experience. For they didn't try to force a traditional accepted experience into the mobile environment. Mm-hmm. They took what what can the mobile phone do. And let's build an experience around that. And they did that really, really, really well. So I can't fault them for that. I have no doubt that Mario Kart Tour won't uh, honor those same kind of uh, that same kind of mentality. Um, but kind of, I guess, uh, along it takes a lot for a mobile game to really hook me. I have played plenty of them in the past and really, really enjoyed plenty of them in the past. But um, there's just so many other games that are non-mobile that I I enjoy and and you know usually when I'm on my phone I'm I, I don't want to spend time playing games on it. I want to spend time checking news, mm-hmm. looking at social media, um, God forbid, making a call on it, uh, that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's just, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll leave my game playing time for my, in front of my TV or in front of my Switch or something. Yep, I'm exactly the same way. I am I am excited about it, again, just as from a business perspective, I think. Now, Nintendo, in, in a lot of their earnings talks and investor calls, has have said things like, to your point, we're, we're not going to just take the... Nintendo 8-bit experience and drop it into phones because they don't feel that things that really require a controller to play well translate well to phone, and I think that's spot on. So I think you're concerned about just focusing or being too heavily reliant upon gyroscopic technology in the phones is probably... um, I think Nintendo probably hears that, and it'll be interesting to see what control scheme they use for it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So it's not coming out for a while, not till March 2019. Uh, It turns out there's also another game that is not coming out until later than originally expected, and that's Red Dead Redemption 2, which has been delayed until October. Mm -hmm. What do you think about this, Scott? I am always okay with the delay to iron out issues. The the developers have said, look, it's just not ready. It needs more polish. We're going to just delay it. It was the initial time was spring 2018, and whenever a release date is in the sort of, hey, we're going to give you a year and a any season you know to take that with a huge grain of salt right Mm -hmm. and now that they've they've said okay we've got a date it's october 26th uh, which is actually the day right after my birthday Uh, so i'll be playing a lot of red dead redemption 2 over my birthday (laughs) weekend is is what i take away from this but um, (laughs) i frankly very rarely play games right at launch anyway just because i've got a backlog of whatever i'm working through at the time getting back to my ocd and not wanting to move on to the next game before i've finished whatever i'm on uh, so not you know, a delay of six months or whatever it ends up being is it very doesn't move my needle at, at all. Yeah, same here. Uh, I made a video about uh, the cost of games recently, um, and it was asking the question, are video games too expensive? And one of the reasons I, I, I first, it, as part of that video, I had to map out what goes into the costs of a game. Uh, and a lot of that is people. Um, it's essentially, it's people and time. You know, uh, the more people and the more time you put into a game, the more expensive it's going to be. And so I know that when developers say they're going to push a game out, that's not a decision they take lightly. Mm-hmm. Um, that that is a that that is an expensive decision to say that we are going to take longer to make this game very expensive. In the book uh, "Blood, Sweat, and Pixels" by Kotaku editor Jason Schreier, he mentioned that one of the I, th- I believe it was Obsidian uh, Studios uses a formula about ten thousand ten thousand ten thousand dollars per person per month to develop a game. 
Um, and so if, uh, you know, you, you have 400 people working on a game, I don't know how many are working on Red Dead Redemption 2, probably not quite 400, but a lot, I'm sure. Uh, you take that every additional month, you're taking $10,000 times that. I mean, it's a lot of money. Yep. So um, they're not taking it lightly, so I definitely respect that. Um, in terms of my own personal interest, I, I never played Red Dead Redemption 1. I, I, I missed the entire uh, PlayStation 3, that generation of consoles. Uh, I would I hope that they're going to do some sort of re-release for PlayStation 4 or at least even bring it digitally to mm-hmm. PlayStation 4. I'd be fine with that. That's my hope because I've heard so much great stuff about this game and I've watched so much great footage. I really, really want to play it. I just don't have the ability to. So I'm hoping they'll bring that out along with the launch of Red Dead Redemption 2 to some degree or even later maybe bundle it or something like that. I'd be okay with that. That's my hope. Did you ever play Red Dead Revolver? I did not play that either. No. Mm-mm. And that was on two, right? PlayStation uh, yeah, two. PlayStation Two and Xbox. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but no, I think it would be cool if they had like a you know a collector's pack that was a, a prequel, you know, both of the prequels here to Red Dead Redemption Two that could satiate us uh, for the summer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So speaking of delays, you know, we, nothing but delay news here. Delay, <laughs> delay, delay. One of them, Nintendo's online Switch service, obviously has had a delay up till this point, but they finally announced a launch date, and it's going to be in September. It was supposed to start at the beginning of the year. Uh, the The free beta service for their online their online product was supposed to just be uh, from Switch's launch through the end of 2017. That got extended because the online service just was not ready for full rollout, and Nintendo didn't want to be charging people for a service that was half done. Which you know, props to them, continue to mm-hmm. give mm-hmm. give folks access to online multiplayer support and whatnot while they iron out everything with their i think primarily with the the store and the the stuff that's going to be part of that classic game catalog because the the games that they're going to be releasing there they're going to be you know revamped with online leaderboards online multiplayer things like that uh so you know it's it's nice to see that they're you know finally have a a roadmap in place to launch it um it's i'm not sure whether it's going to be something I subscribe to. Um, I do subscribe to PlayStation Plus. I don't subscribe to Xbox Gold. And, and it's largely just because I don't care about the digital store discounts mm-hmm. or and or the really the classic game catalog stuff is, or the online multiplayer support. I'm, I'm a hermit. I play games by <laughs> myself or by friends when they come visit. I'm not going out and playing against 14-year-olds on, on the interwebs. <laughs> Uh, not my thing, but I'm happy that it's going to be ready for everybody who loves it. Cause I know I'm in the vast, vast minority in all of those old man gripes. <laughs> well, and also considering, I mean, you have any game that they could possibly put on this, uh, this, uh, service anyway. I mean, any of the older retro games that they add to it, you have those. So it's not as though you're waiting for this to launch in order to have access to all of these games. Right, exactly, yeah. And part of the nostalgia for me for those games, which is not going to be the case for a lot of the younger crowd who's just getting into retro gaming, is putting the cart into the you know the 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 old school Nintendo and using that original Nintendo controller or the Super Nintendo and and just going back to all of those non-game cues that we were talking about before whether it's the the sound of of the cart locking into place or mm-hmm. you know just the controller cord dangling at your feet as you're playing you know, all of those things are part of the experience that I enjoy yeah here's one the uh the 
initially grating sound of the pin connector gripping the <laughs> ROM board. Yep. Like every time you're like, I think I broke it. Yep. I, I think I broke it. <laughs> what have I done? What have I done? Yep. <laughs> uh, that's a good one. That's probably, that's, that's a good one. Well, one of these days we'll just have to have an entire episode of just like the little things that are going to spawn all these memories. That'll be great. Uh, yeah, I, I'm excited about uh, this. I, I will probably subscribe at least for a year. The cost is definitely helpful. It's so small. Oh, yeah. I was, I was a subscriber. A it's awesome. Yeah, super, super nice. I was a subscriber to the PS uh, PlayStation Network for a little while, or the PlayStation. Yeah, it's network. Right? PlayStation Plus. Yep. It's, Thank you. Yes. Yep. Yes. Um, I was a, subscri- a subscriber to that for a little while, but even sixty dollars a year, which is I think is how much it was when I was doing it, it was just too much. I like I didn't I didn't get that much use out of it. Um, and so twenty dollars a year uh, sounds great to be yeah. able to play some of these old games. Sounds great. So yeah. I'll probably give it. A, I won't be an early adopter by any means. I'll wait till the reviews come out. But I can't. You know, I, I think I'll enjoy it. So it'll be interesting to see how they do this whole access to their game catalog. Uh, you know, in when it comes down to the nitty gritty and just how how the the logistics of it actually work, how will will it be? You get to keep the games. Will it be a, a rolling catalog? Will it be how many will they add to the catalog every month? Yeah, I think it'll be that'll be something that I'm interested in just for um, more business purposes. I, I more and more game companies are trying to switch to a subscription, almost a software as a service model. Um, you look at games with gold announcing you know, just a couple of weeks ago now that their exclusive games for the Xbox one are all going to be available day one for free mm-hmm. for people with games with gold. And there's been a lot of talk about how people are wondering how, how Microsoft is ever going to make that work financially, where they are basically quote unquote, giving away for free all of their exclusive games. Well, they're not giving it away for free. They're what they're trying to do is get more people to subscribe to something that they're they're paying for every month, right? Mm-hmm. A subscription-based model, if done properly, is much more lucrative business model than a transactional model. Now, and by transactional model, I mean a model where there are one-off transactions. You buy something, you go away. So, like I sell you my widget and you leave. You may or may not ever come back to buy another widget from me. And on top of that, each widget that I sell is entirely dependent upon you or some other customer wanting that exact widget. That's that's difficult to scale and it's difficult to budget for. There's a reason that gyms don't operate on an entrance fee model, right? Because they would get you to pay your $10 entrance fee once, maybe twice, and then they never see you again and they'd only make $20 off of you. There's a reason that Adobe and Microsoft Office have gone away from selling you know, multiple hundred dollar software licenses and instead are trying to get people to subscribe to their subscription model for much a much lower price, but in a recurring sort of way. It's about scale and it's about recurring revenue. So in North America, Microsoft has sold 23 million Xbox One consoles. The highest selling game on Xbox One so far mm-hmm. is Call of Duty Black Ops 3. It's sold four and a half million copies in North America. That's a 20% attachment rate. And that's the highest <laughs> selling game on the system. If we look at the top five Xbox One console exclusives, Halo 5, Gears of War Ultimate Edition, Gears of War 4, and Halo Chief Master Chief Collection, I'm sorry, Halo Master Chief Collection, and Titanfall... 
the average number of copies sold among those five is 2.3 million copies. That's only a 10% attachment rate. And that's the best of the best for the Xbox exclusives. So now let's convert this and see how that compares. The revenue that comes in from that compares to a subscription model. And let's give it, let's give the, the standard transactional model the benefit of the doubt and say that 10% is the average attachment rate for all Xbox exclusives, even though in reality that's just the top five in sales. So in reality, the average attachment rate is much lower than that. So let's say 10%. And let's give it the benefit of the doubt and say that for every one of those copies sold for were sold for full price at launch for $60 US. And let's say that all $60 of that retail price went to Microsoft. Now, let's also imagine that Microsoft can publish a new exclusive game every other month. And they've shown that that's not possible. Nobody does that. Not, not Sony, not Nintendo, not... Microsoft, nobody does that on a consistent basis, right? That's a, a, not a schedule that the, anybody can keep up with. So if that was the case, this pie in the sky scenario, that means that the average new exclusive game release would net Microsoft $3 per console per month. $60 times a 10% attachment rate is $6 divided by two because they only come out once every other month, $3. Now, Xbox Game Pass costs $10 a month. So that means that if Microsoft can just get over 30% of Xbox owners to subscribe to Game Pass, Microsoft could never sell another game again and see an increase in both revenue and profit. That is the power of software as a service model. Yeah, it, 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 I think that's probably the, the key right there is it helps them anticipate cash flow. It helps them probably better establish budgets. It helps them, you know, and if they can better establish budgets, I think that's probably in the long term going to make it easier to probably develop out exclusives and probably easier to develop games like Crackdown 3 and have them release on time and have, you know, it's it just allows for better planning when you can anticipate that cash flow. Um and yeah. I think uh, your your point about um, the adoption rate and, and things like that, I think uh, the way that I think about it anyway is that when you release a new game, um, there's that spike in revenue sales, and then that degrades pretty quickly um, mm -hmm. depending on the type of game, all that kind of stuff. But there's a spike, and then it kind of drops out a little bit. Um, what they're hoping to do is sort of plateau that a little bit so it's yep. a little bit more expected so yeah it smooths out your cash flows and you see this in in just game release schedule to begin with because to your point that game game at a launch has a spike in revenue and then trails off so you, you look at things like another delay that was just announced was ea confirmed that anthem was being delayed to early 19 instead of fall 2018 but the reason for it wasn't because it, they needed more time to to work on it it's it's going to be basically done by fall of 2018 but because there's so much stuff going on in fall of 2018 and EA themselves have Battlefield 2 releasing at that time, they said, hey, let's kick out Anthem to early 2019. We'll get the spike in revenue for Battlefield, and then we'll get the spike in revenue again in Q1 of 2019. And it sort of evens out your quarterly earnings when for investor purposes and for just cash flow and operations purposes. Yes, every, all of us gamers do have to remember we're gamers only because we, we are allowed to be gamers only because there are game businesses to make games. So they're businesses. We have to understand that and respect that. 
Um, so yeah, I, I think you know sometimes uh, game companies have to make tough decisions. Sometimes they have to switch things up. Sometimes they have to change things. And that's no different uh, with uh, Sony. Um, Sony's president is uh, stepping down. And I'll let you take this one over, primarily because I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. And I want you <laughs> to flub through this. I believe it's Kaz Hirai is stepping down as CEO. He is sort of the father of PlayStation. He headed up uh, Sony Computer Entertainment back in the 90s and sort of steered the ship through the launch of PlayStation 1, PlayStation 2, PSP, and it sort of famously had the ignominity of uh, being the guy who announced the PlayStation 3 at the infamous uh, (laughs) unveiling where I talked about it being super expensive and being a huge investment and um, unveiling that $599 price point that made everyone aghast. But by and large, I think by any measure, Kaz Hirai's leadership of Sony has been a huge success. He's been CEO for uh, seven years now. He was promoted from the head of PlayStation division to CEO back in 2011 and has uh, served in that capacity ever since and is really just stepping down because of all of the travel uh he's he's getting up there now in age and and he's going to stay on as sony's chairman of the board and he's going to be succeeded as ceo by their cfo kenichiro yoshida so not really a changing of the guard per se as he's sort of always been as yoshida's always been in line as the the guy that is likely going was likely going to succeed hirai but I think, you know, it's it is a an end of an era for for Sony and as a Sony guy lately in the last few generations primarily, it is sort of an end of an era. He's always been sort of synonymous in my mind with with the PlayStation product. Long may he uh Rest in peace. Wait, you're not dead. <laughs> Long may he retire in peace. There we go. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of businesses and and CEO duties and shareholder interaction, there's been a lot of rumors lately about uh, Microsoft and the fact that they're struggling with their exclusive catalog, the fact that they're looking to bolster it. And what comes with that is acquisition rumors. A lot of, lot of discussion going on mm-hmm. over the last week or so about Microsoft possibly buying someone, da- dipping their toe into the M&A uh, pool. Obviously, Microsoft, no stranger to buying companies. They've purchased Rare, of course, and uh, you know, outside of the gaming world have been a, a huge acquirer over the, the past couple of decades since they exploded on the scene. Have you have you seen any of these rumors talking about EA, Valve, uh, Player Unknown, the, the company behind Player Unknown Battlegrounds, PUBG Corp? I have. Uh, I've. I've. Uh, I have a hard time really believing too much of any of it, uh, but believing a, the specific uh, 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 the specific companies that people are are uh, thinking about my, Microsoft publishing. I mean, I have a I have a tough time believing a lot of them just because in my own. Uh, business deficient mind um they just seem almost too big like why would they do that you know it would have to be a mm-hmm. huge price tag for that to happen i mean yep. i know that your uh your business acumen would probably have some some good information from my perspective i just it, to me it'd be it would be the equivalent of saying you know uh, uh you know amazon is gonna buy whole foods which i was like that's <laughs> that you know like that seems crazy to me like how would that whole foods is massive and and why would amazon care and all this kind of stuff so 
a lot of these stipula- a lot of these uh, uh, guesses are probably way more logical than my puny little brain would even allow. Well, I think your primary concern there, the size of at least with EA, with respect to EA and Valve, is a valid concern. And frankly, that's why I don't think EA or Valve will be purchased by Microsoft. I think there's really when when companies are getting into and at making an acquisition and weighing whether an acquisition makes sense, there's really two primary concerns. I mean, two two categories of concern that need to be addressed. One is obviously the price. Is it something that would that makes sense from a a value being brought in versus a price to acquire? Is the cash flow that in and profit that's going to be generated by your purchase of this company? Does that more than make up for the cash flow that you're losing by paying out the cost to acquire it? And when you look at Microsoft, now Microsoft itself is a huge company, right? They could they can absolutely afford to buy EA. They can absolutely afford to buy Valve. They could absolutely afford to go buy both of them, quite frankly. And to Microsoft itself would be a drop in the bucket. To Microsoft's gaming division, however... Both of those would be extremely expensive. Taking a step back before I get too much into that, the other thing to weigh in in addition to price is strategic fit. Why are we buying this? What value strategically does this company bring to our company or our company's product portfolio that means that our owning EA or our owning Valve makes more sense to Microsoft than just allowing those products, than allowing EA to own EA, allowing Valve to own Valve. Is there something that we can bring strategically that makes those assets more valuable as part of our portfolio? And so strategically, obviously, every every article that folks have been reading online talks about what the strategic rationale is. Microsoft is re- facing the very real proposition of being third in the market for home consoles. They are way behind, globally, they are way behind PlayStation already with Xbox One. Um, so they're playing second fiddle there. Globally, the Xbox One has sold about 30 million units, and PlayStation has more than doubled that. So they, they're already playing second fiddle, and now with the Switch selling over 14 million units in just the nine months since it was launched, that's halfway to Xbox One's global sales. So if Nintendo succeeds at even you know, even doubling where they're at, then Xbox One is going to be falling to third place in the console market. And third place is not where Microsoft wants to be. They've been there before with the original Xbox, which, I mean, we look back on the original Xbox now as being the hardware leader of that generation, but it was far and away third fiddle to PlayStation 2 and even the GameCube in that that console war. Not something that Microsoft wants to repeat. So in order to juice their position in the market, they, they're going to need to acquire more... Uh, a more constant stream of exclusive games. You know, the G- Microsoft Xbox One exclusives have sort of become a a a joke in the industry, right? <laughs> it's it's what exclusives. You know, mm-hmm. you look at the just the launch schedule this year with a lot of Xbox exclusives that they did have on on tap are are being delayed. Things like Crackdown delayed again, right? Um it's just not a pretty story for Microsoft looking looking at the looking down the the competition from Nintendo coming fast and furious. 
so getting back to the price now, I, the, the three speculative companies that are out in the in the the news today are, are Electronic Arts, Valve, and and PUBG. PUBG, I really don't think checks the strategic goal. I don't think that's they. While it may be a, an acquisition target, it wouldn't be the acquisition target that solves Microsoft's exclusive problem, right? Um, the game PUBG is already really a console exclusive to Microsoft because Microsoft does have an ownership stake in it. And um, frankly, it doesn't expand their portfolio all that meaningfully. PUBG is, for, for those who haven't played it, is a, a massively multiplayer uh, action game, first-person shooter, right? It's, it's very much in the Microsoft core consumer wheelhouse already with the halo crowd the call of duty crowd a lot of the the online competitive online crowd being in the microsoft ecosystem to begin with so it doesn't really do anything to bring people into the microsoft portfolio but with that said it would probably be a relatively cost efficient acquisition so while that would happen i don't think it would be the big the big splash that microsoft is is rumored to be looking at Electronic Arts, while this would clearly be a huge splash, it would bring a massive portfolio of games to become Microsoft exclusives, it would be a, an absolutely huge financial undertaking. So going back to just Microsoft's gaming division, Microsoft's entire gaming division produces for Microsoft about $16 billion a year in revenue. So Microsoft as a whole does about $90 billion in revenue annually. And Microsoft's enterprise value, which is the value of the entire company, is about $660 billion. Now, so that means that the market values Microsoft as a whole at about six and a half times revenue. So for every dollar of revenue that Microsoft makes, they make the market says your company is worth six and a half dollars for every dollar. Okay. So if we take that six and a half times revenue equation and we extrapolate that against Microsoft's gaming division, $16 billion in revenue, that means that their gaming division, if it was a standalone company, should be worth about $100 billion. So now getting back to EA, EA has an annual revenue of about $5 billion and an enterprise value of about $35 billion. So interestingly, you can see that that's right in that same general revenue to enterprise value multiplier range as Microsoft. So $5 billion in revenue, $35 billion in enterprise value, that's a seven times multiplier compared to the, the six and a half on Microsoft. So that makes me feel pretty good about pegging the value of Microsoft's gaming division at about $100 billion. So essentially, now if Microsoft mm -hmm. bought EA, they would be acquiring a company almost one third their size. Now, that's certainly feasible from a pure price perspective, but you also have to consider that EA's $5 billion of annual revenue is achieved because they're platform agnostic, right? So they're able to sell their games to owners of every single platform, whether you have an Xbox, a PlayStation, a Switch, a Wii U, a PC even. EA can sell you games. You're a potential customer for EA. So if Microsoft were to purchase EA and make them an Xbox exclusive publisher or even just an Xbox console mm -hmm. exclusive and still keep the, the PC side of things, the reven EA's revenue would decline 
precipitously because the addressable market is now just people who own Xboxes. So it shrank from anybody who just owns a PlayStation is out. Mm. Anybody who mm-hmm. just owns a Wii U is out. Anybody who just owns a Switch is out, right? You're only selling to people who buy, who already have Xboxes or who are going to buy Xboxes now because EA is exclusive. So you could realistically think that EA would settle in in a long-term pace. Obviously, in right off the bat, their, their revenue would drop precipitously because it would take time for Xbox adoption to ramp up to the pace to catch up to um, you know, X, PlayStation 4 or so forth. So you could really think long-term that EA's revenue might decline something by like 30% in sales. So that means they're worth 30% less, right? It, it goes hand-in-hand there. So on top of that, an acquisition typically has a 25 to 30% takeout premium built into the purchase price. So that means that when a company comes to buy another company, they typically have to pay up and above and beyond what the market values that company at in order to acquire control. It's got control premium. And that can run anywhere from 25 to 30%, like I said. So that means that if Microsoft bought EA, you have to deal with the roughly, you know, call it 30% decline in sales. And then on top of a 25 to 30% increased price. So that would basically compound to mean that Microsoft would essentially be overpaying by call it 70%. And that means that Microsoft would be paying around $50 billion for something that's now worth maybe half of that, maybe less than half of that 20, $25 billion. And now, this is going to be true for any third-party publisher that Microsoft acquires. So what that really tells you is that in order to make financial sense, an acquisition has to be modestly priced. It has to be modestly valued. They can't go and kind of swallow a whale, so to speak. So it just exacerbates your concern about the cost of EA, the cost of Valve. Now, Valve is is interesting because it's a private company, whereas EA is a public company. You can go to you know, any number of finance sites, whether it's Yahoo Finance or your your stockbroker website, you can see exactly how much EA is worth as a company. So you know it's going to buy them out is going to cost roughly X. Valve is a private company, so they don't release earnings, they don't release revenue, they don't release what their profit is every year. So you sort of have to try and figure out what they're worth, what they would end up what they would end up commanding on an M&A market. And if you look at revenue, um, according to Steam Spy, which is a a site that sort of estimates Steam's revenue based on a bunch of different metrics and combing data from reviews and, and Steam's online platform, in 2016, Steam Spy estimated that Steam had about $3.5 billion of revenue. So if you compare that to about the $4.5 billion of revenue that EA makes every year, you basically could think that they're worth just slightly south of EA's 45 to 50 billion price tag, which still, again, that makes them a a huge financial fish to swallow. Um, EA had $4.8 billion of revenue in 2017. So Valve might be slightly smaller, but still still a, a wallop to take on. Now, Valve does provide some strategic benefit in that it allows some interesting cross-buy functionality 
and cross-buy capability to Microsoft. Whereas if you buy a game on PC and Steam, if Microsoft owns it, you could also get the game on Xbox Live. It would open up all of the games that are sort of indie exclusives to PC that are available on Valve to Xbox. So I think Valve, out of the games, out of the companies that are rumored, makes the most sense as a potential acquisition target but i again i think it's just far too expensive not to mention that gabe newell who owns valve was a is a former microsoft employee and from all accounts hates microsoft so <laughs> microsoft coming to the table would probably have to overpay for steam in order to you know satiate newell to begin with yeah i can't imagine that happening and i can't imagine yeah i just can't imagine that conversation going well and i think you you mentioned something that um, I want to make sure I understand correctly and properly. I mean, just the fact that Steam is primarily a PC. Ba- basically, there's no competition between Steam uh, and consoles as right now. So the same. So the problem that you would have with EA, where EA games are sold on multiple platforms, and that would undercut or that would reduce the the potential revenue coming in by two thirds essentially. If if they were to acquire EA, acquiring Valve is a little bit different just because all of the user base already are PCs and if or already are computers. And if you consider most of those computers are probably PCs running Microsoft software, um, it's just that there's not as much of a of a hurdle there, a problem there. Sounds yeah, like. absolutely. You don't have to haircut the the revenue that you're com- you're bringing in from Valve post acquisition like you would with EA. That's that's. Thanks for clarifying that. I don't think I expounded on that. That's a a fantastic point. I think you uh, you did it just fine. Um, I am just slow, so I wanted to make sure I was catching on. <laughs> no, that's a, a great call out. Um, yeah, I mean, of the three, I think Valve obviously makes the most sense, but it, it's still still a long shot. So I wanted to go through after I saw all these articles and thought, God, you know, I don't think any of these really make sense. And and uh, that those are it's basically those three that have been rumored and reported and everywhere. And I haven't seen anybody else sort of take a stab at what some other options might be. What would some dark horses be? Uh, that might make sense for Microsoft to look at from both. Uh, now I wanted to, going back to my criteria for an acquisition, I wanted to look at the price and I wanted to look at the strategic fit for Microsoft. So for price, I wanted to make sure that it was something realistic given Microsoft's 16 billion revenue um, you know, in their gaming division. So price-wise, I wanted to set our criteria at nothing higher than $16 billion in enterprise value. In other words, I wanted the value of the target company to be priced at no more than Microsoft Gaming's annual revenue. And that's for all the reasons that we discussed before about hyper price sensitivity whenever you're taking a target company, acquiring them and restricting their revenue on a go forward basis. You've got to extract money. You've got to extract value elsewhere. So along with that, additionally, we want to look for value in that target company. We want to look for something that the market might be underpricing to start with. So we know that Microsoft and Electronic Arts are valued at roughly six and a half to eight times revenue. So an acquisition target should really be valued at something less than that. That means that there's unrealized value left on the bone, so to speak. So something in maybe the three, four, five range in terms of revenue to enterprise value multiple. Strategic fit, it had to be, it has to check two prongs. It has to have a game catalog that expands Microsoft's exclusivity portfolio, which again, going back to my comment on PUBG Corp, acquiring PUBG Corp doesn't really do anything to expand Microsoft's appeal. Uh, Two 
new markets or new gamers. So it not only does it have to add exclusives, it can't just be a, a one and done type company like PUBG, but it also has to expand the scope of who Microsoft systems appeal to. Microsoft systems have typically appealed to sort of the same gamer ever since the the original Xbox. It's the Halo crowd, it's the Forza crowd, it's the online gaming crowd. And that is a large reason why Xbox has traditionally done extremely poorly in Japan because they the, the traditional Japanese gamer does not care at all about what Microsoft is bringing to the table. So with that in mind, I went and I looked at three companies that I thought would be good fits in terms of both price and size and strategic fit. So the first one that I want to talk about is Square Enix. Square Enix checks both of my boxes on price. Their enterprise value is about $4.3 billion, which is only a quarter of my self-imposed maximum. And even after a takeout premium, which again, we go back, it's probably 25 to 30%, it would probably cost Microsoft less than $6 billion to buy them. Where it gets even better, Square Enix does $1.5 billion in annual revenue. So that means they're only being valued at about three times revenue. Remember, Microsoft and EA are in that six and a half to seven range. So there's value left to be had there. there there's potential to juice that valuation with some operational efficiencies that Microsoft could provide to help make up for some of the revenue decline by essentially taking them private. Strategically, I think Square Enix makes really, really good sense for for Microsoft. It gives legs to the Xbox platform in Japan. You know, the Square Enix, obviously, the they are traditionally a Japanese niche, um, you know, player. They obviously the Square side is famous for the Final Fantasy series, Secret of Mana, Kingdom Hearts. You know, in Enix, you've got Dragon Quest. Um, as a combined company, things like Near, you know, Near Automata, the first Near, um, it's a completely untapped market for Microsoft in terms of the Japanese market, as well as in terms of really the role-playing market here in in the West. So you're looking at everybody talks about how the Xbox One is struggling so badly and how it's being trounced by the PlayStation Four. Well, that's not a North America problem. So if you if you go to you know, the the look at the the console sales if you go to uh, vgcharts with a z dot com you can see all kinds of sales figures for consoles for games it's a really interesting I, I love this site for just seeing how things are doing now they they estimate that Xbox One consoles in North America have sold twenty two point one million. So uh, Xbox has sold 22 million consoles here in North America. PlayStation, North America sales is only 25 million. So really, there's not a lot of difference between Xbox One sales here in the U.S. versus PlayStation 4 sales here in the U.S. Now, that's completely discounts the fact that it's a valid argument that there's really been three iterations of the Xbox One, and some of those 22 million sales are one consumer buying the launch Xbox and then buying the Xbox One S and then buying the Xbox One X. So you don't really have, you may have, you have two real iterations of PlayStation 4. So it's a little bit apples to oranges there. But the story is, is that uh, 
in terms of console sales, just sheer sales numbers, Xbox One and PlayStation 4 are on equal footing really here in North America. When you look globally, that that number, that that story tilts palpably. So in Europe, PlayStation 4 has sold 29 million consoles. So they've actually sold more consoles. Sony has sold more PlayStation 4s in Europe than they have in North America. Xbox has sold under 10 million consoles in, in Europe. So it's almost a three to one um, trouncing that Xbox is getting in Europe compared to PlayStation 4. So they really have ground to make up. They have untapped market potential in Europe. Japan, that number is even more staggering. The PlayStation 4 has sold just under 6 million consoles in Japan. Xbox One has sold 90 thousand consoles in japan wow it it's astounding (laughs) japan sony has sold 63 times more playstation vitas in japan than xbox has than microsoft has sold xbox ones i mean and vita is sort of the laughing stock of failed system in the industry right i mean and 63 times as many console sales as xbox one the Japanese market is a completely green territory for Microsoft. If they could even get their foot in the door there, um, it would do huge things for Xbox gaming, for Microsoft's gaming division. Um, and if you look at then the top selling games in the Japanese market, again, as a source from VG charts, five of the top selling games of 2017, the top Five of the top 25 top-selling games in 2017 in Japan are Square Enix titles, including number one. So, I mean, it, it really, just with one acquisition, you really do open the door to a whole new market, a whole new gamer. And these are games that do well, you know, across the globe as well. Square Enix games, like number one in Japan is Dragon Quest Eleven for the 3DS. Um You've got uh, Near Automata is number 10. You've got um, Dragon Quest Monsters is number 20. You've got Kingdom Hearts HD 2.8, Final Chapter Prologue, number 23. You know, it, it's just the place, the Square Enix portfolio does extremely well in Japan. Um, and for, for a relatively modest purchase price, you know, you, you've also got games that will do well in the West. You've got Lara Croft, who can be mm-hmm. you know, your Microsoft answer to Nathan Drake in the Uncharted series. Um, you've got Deus Ex, you've got Thief, you've got Hitman, all games that do very well in the West, including obviously the Final Fantasy series and um, Kingdom Hearts series, very you know, powerhouse games in the West. Um, so I think I would put Square Enix as my number one target if I'm if I'm Microsoft again, I would peg the purchase price at about six billion dollars. That's roughly ten percent of what it would cost EA to buy EA, or what it would cost Microsoft to buy EA. Um, a drop in the bucket. Mm-hmm. Number two would be Ubisoft. Now Ubisoft size and price they make they do about 1.5 billion dollars in revenue annually and their enterprise value is just under 10 billion so this would be it would cost them about twice as much to buy ubisoft as it would cost to buy square but they could microsoft could buy both ubisoft and square enix and still not be halfway to what it would cost them to buy ea 
again, Ubisoft is a publicly traded company, which just makes it easier to to do an acquisition. You can do things like uh, uh, you know takeovers, and and um, you know you don't have to have some someone like a Gabe Newell saying, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll sell you my private asset. Um, a strategic fit. Again, we we mentioned the European down you know the european struggles that xbox one has had where they're being outsold three to one by playstation ubisoft is a french company and they do extremely well in europe looking at the the top european sales again at video game vg charts six of the top 25 selling games in europe in 2017 um, were games that are sort of available to be purchased by Microsoft. So there's not a lot that Microsoft can do to really tap into the European market because most of those top-selling games are things like uh, things that are owned by EA, things that are owned by Activision, which are you know out of the price range of Microsoft likely, or things that are produced by Sony or Nintendo, which are clearly out of the you know out. Out of bounds for for Microsoft, they're not options. So when you look at the six games in the top twenty five in Europe that were not by EA, Activision, Nintendo, or Sony, one of those is already on Microsoft's platform. That's Forza Horizon Three coming in at number twenty two, and then there's one each by Capcom, Resident Evil Seven, and then Take Two, Grand Theft Auto Five. The other three are Ubisoft. Assassin's Creed Origins, Tom Clancy Ghost Recon's Wildlands, and For Honor. So it really does, you know, a, a, a purchase of Ubisoft, not only as a French company, which would give you just an in as an American company trying to, you know, grease the skids a little bit in, in Europe, but you're also getting access to games that do quite well in Europe. Now, uh, a con for buying Ubisoft is that it does virtually nothing for the Asian markets. If you look at the top 25 sales in in Japan, none of them are Ubisoft games. So it doesn't really move the needle there for, for Microsoft. But again, Microsoft could buy both Square Enix and Ubisoft and have an absolute powerhouse for for half the price of what it would cost to buy EA or Valve. And then the third company, which is a smaller company, but obviously has some real name carte blanche in the gaming industry, would only cost Microsoft $2 billion, so half or maybe a third of what it would cost to buy Square Enix. They're a publicly traded company, and that is Capcom. So strategic fit, it's a low-cost, low-risk thing. It doesn't really do anything to... um, you know, to, to Microsoft's operations to take them on. And it's a solid catalog with global appeal. They've got Resident Evil, which we already mentioned, does well in both Japan and Europe. They've got Monster Hunter, which is huge in Japan. Mega Man, which kind of checks your box for the retro niche. You've got Street Fighter, again, huge in Japan, huge in the U.S. You could really pair Capcom with you're with Microsoft's own, you know, they own Rare already. You could pair Capcom with Rare for a really solid slate of retro packs and capitalize on the retro craze, all for a relatively low entrance price. So, I mean, I think, I don't think EA, I don't think Valve, I don't think PUBG make sense to, to Microsoft as acquisitions, but Square Enix, Ubisoft, and Capcom, I think make a lot of sense. And frankly, Microsoft could buy all three and spend nowhere near as much money as it would cost to buy either EA or Valve. Do you think there's anything in Microsoft's history that would uh, have you lean toward one of these 
as opposed to the other. I mean, it, it feels like to me that Microsoft has historically played in their sandbox of, you know, cars and guns type games and online games. Is there any reason to suspect that they would go for more of a strategic fit rather than sort of staying in something like a PUBG, for example, where they know that that just fits, it takes all of their, their current user base boxes. Do you think they're, they're willing to look beyond their current user base? I, I think they are. And I think their, their acquisition of Rare hints at that. You know, Rare obviously has huge success in the N64 with GoldenEye. Obviously, that's sort of in that same um, wheelhouse. But since GoldenEye and, and Perfect Dark, they've really branched out. They're, they've done things like Banjo-Kazooie and a lot more platforming type things and a lot more, um, you know, a broader appeal than just kind of the, the GoldenEye first-person shooter type game. And I think that the Rare acquisition really hints at Microsoft wanting to broaden their base. And there's no reason, if Microsoft just wants to play in their own sandbox, then an acquisition really doesn't make sense. Right. You've, you've already got that locked down with you know, your relationship with, with Bungie and, and owning the Halo you know, trademarks and franchise there. You've got um, the racing, the sim racing crowd you've got with Forza, the arcade racing crowd with Forza Horizon. You, you're really already checking those boxes. What it doesn't do well is a breadth of catalog. It, that's where Sony just absolutely clobbers Microsoft. Um, you know, Cuphead, Microsoft is getting a little bit. They're starting to dabble and, and do some things and, and throw some backing behind games that are outside of their traditional wheelhouse. Um, and I think that... Um, I think that the, the acquisition rumors hint that, they, that they're looking to do something to, to expand that wheelhouse. What would surprise you most about this acquisition, about the acquisition? Like, is there anything that you would be very much, you would be just absolutely shocked if they did this, even if that's that they actually didn't proceed with an acquisition or that they uh, did try to buy one of the three companies that you had said were basically, they shouldn't be, they shouldn't entertain. I think the thing that would shock me most is if they bought EA. For one, I don't think EA does enough to expand their market. I think a lot of there's a lot of crossover between the EA crowd and the you know the, just with the competitive online aspect. So I think a lot of EA EA already does really really well in sales for um, for Microsoft on on Microsoft's platform. So I think you have a double whammy of a. Uh, games that are already in your wheelhouse and a purchase price that makes doing anything else outside the box very cost prohibitive. So a purchase of EA would be the absolute last thing I would think Microsoft would do, including not buy anything. Mm. I think I think not I think do nothing is a more likely outcome than purchasing EA. Well, I think in the long run as long as it's helping gamers, which it feels like it would, um the only the only way in which it wouldn't possibly help gamers is obviously those who may really enjoy these the properties from Ubisoft, Capcom, Square Enix, or any others that they may purchase, may then force gamers to have to end up buying an Xbox. But I can speak for myself specifically that, yeah, if, if I knew that there were going to be no, um, no more uh, Fallout games, for example, um, on 
PlayStation, which Fallout is Bethesda, so that wasn't mentioned here. But as an example, yeah, that probably would dr- drive me to have to buy an Xbox. I mean, that's how much I care about that. And in the in the adage is true. Uh, well, this is, I guess, all assuming is based on the assumption that the adage is true that exclusivity sell consoles. Um, and as long as you trust that, as long as you believe that, and the numbers I think would tell us that 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 is the case. As long as you b- buy into that, then all of the other logic that you've laid out here makes absolute sense to me. Uh, you know, a business peon, if that, I don't know if that uh, is is encouraging or not, but it definitely uh, seems seems reasonable. That's really the rub there, right? I mean, the loss in revenue that any acquisition target would take from now only having one platform to sell on, you will never ever sell as many copies of a game with one platform as you could with three platforms, right? It's just... There will always be someone who has one of the other platforms and does not have your platform, who is no longer in your universe to sell to. So what you have to do, what Microsoft has to do by if they purchase one of these companies is they have to make up that lost revenue because no matter who they buy, they're paying for the sales that they've made in the past. So if if I'm mm-hmm. if I'm Square Enix and I sell a hundred games every year and thirty of them are on Xbox and thirty of them are on we uh, Switch and forty of them are on PlayStation, I'm paying my, the purchase price that I'm paying to buy that company is based on one hundred sales a year. If mm-hmm. I now suddenly just sell to Xbox and I only and I take that thirty that buy it on Xbox and now say suddenly it becomes sixty because more people are buying it that already had Xboxes that are buying it for my system instead of buying it for PlayStation because it's not on PlayStation, that still doesn't recoup the whole one hundred, right? That's only sixty of the one hundred, and that's a that's a rosy perspective. So where that extra revenue has to come from and and ultimately extra profit has to come from is from increased console sales, increased licensing that the increased console sales means for the other games on my platform, uh, increased distribution, lowering my my fixed costs and can be spread among more more um, games, more consoles, more sales. So it really is the the price pers- the price aspect is a huge huge concern. I mean if if the price Price doesn't make sense, which I would contend EA does not. It you never get to the strategic fit part. Well, then what we'll probably end up looking at is uh, you know Kingdom Hearts or or Far Cry or uh, you know uh, even a GTA bundle packs. You know if they can bundle those those now exclusives in with the actual consoles, that might get people to be willing to pull the trigger. You know, give the games away for free for a little while until they're able to actually start making some uh, some revenue on that. So. Yeah, it's all about it's all about getting getting your console into more of our grubby little hands and widening that scope of people who will buy our next mega hit. Yes, and speaking of widening scope for people to buy into what we're selling, uh, we myself, the podcast Masters of Unlocking, and VG Collectaholic can be found all over the internet so so we we have a wide net we want you to come and talk with us and and and, and work with us and 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 comment on the uh on this episode i think it was a very good episode so i would love to hear your comments we would love to hear your comments you can find uh i'll run through how about this scott uh scott i'll run through mine you can run through yours that way uh you're able to to give all of the pimping that you would like to how about that sounds like a plan <laughs> all right you can find me on twitter at caleb j ross 
Uh, you can find me at calebjross.com. That's the letter J, not the word J-A-Y. Caleb J. Ross, one word. Um, you can find the podcast at Masters of Unlocking Podcast on Twitter, mastersofunlocking.com on uh, the browser, and facebook.com forward slash Masters of Unlocking as well. And where, what about you, VG Collectaholic? You can find me on the Twitterverse at VG Collectaholic on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash VG Collectaholic on Instagram, uh, VG Collectaholic, pretty much everywhere, uh, VG Collectaholic.com. And definitely hit us up on Twitter. Twitter is where you'll find us most frequently. Love to engage in discussion. I'd love to hear what some of your thoughts are on who you think would be a good fit for Microsoft to acquire if they do buy someone. Let's uh, let's continue this conversation and sort of socialize it. And I'm sure there are plenty of great fits that I haven't thought of. Let's let's talk about it. Absolutely, and please. Uh, subscribe if you have if you have not subscribed yet, and please review on any of your pod catchers of choice. Uh, iTunes, uh, I believe we're on Stitcher, uh, we're on Google Play Music, um, all of those places. Please leave us reviews. Uh, that definitely helps spread our message in much the same way that Microsoft would like to spread their message. And as Microsoft wants to sell you stuff, if you'd like what we're doing and want to give us a little bit of support, check out our t-shirt store. We got lots of different shirts. We've got some of our logo. We've got some of our cover art. Check it out. You can find it at mastersofunlocking.com. There's a little store link up there at the top. Give that a little click. See what you've got. And broadcast your fandom for the Masters of Unlocking podcast loudly and proudly at the next con you go to. You know, pimp our pimp our little podcast here a little bit (laughs) we would appreciate that well thank you all so much for listening and uh dear homeowner if you're still uh if you still have that ball gag in your mouth well i don't know about a ball gag that seems like a weird thing for for a burglar to use just a regular gag uh if that's still in your in your mouth and you're not able to scream um sorry we we can't really help you out there but i'm hoping you learned something through this podcast and i hope uh i hope you're good i hope you feel feel better tomorrow when you're when the burglar is gone So thank you so much for listening. Uh, Subscribe, and we'll be here the Monday after next. 